please be advised. We will be discussing subjects that may not be suitable for all audiences, and will include subjects that some will find challenging, traumatic, or triggering. Welcome to You Don't Fight Alone, a podcast sharing the stories of those of us successfully living with mental illness and how we got here. I would not be able to specify one over the other. Um, when I was with my partner living together um, in 2004, I remember I had an open wound and I would keep it open and unhealed for almost three months. And we were still sexually active. We still shared an apartment and he never noticed, which is not really on him because I, again, I know how to not make it a thing. So, but at the same time, the longer he didn't notice, I think exacerbated my feeling of him not noticing and maybe pushed me to want to uh, exacerbate the wound because I was like, how do you not notice? Like, how do you not? And if I'm, if I have active wounds, I'm also not completely present emotionally. And, but, you know, I continued our sexual relationship. So I feel that just was enough. I don't know. I, that was a real rough time. Uh, another time was when I moved to Colorado, I started really getting into the pattern of burning and cutting regularly and then I got into another relationship where there was a lot of inconsistency and my feelings would get hurt and the one thing that I learned from my therapist and that I understand now is that there is an element of rage <laughs> that um, I think women especially are kind of socialized not to engage and if you do, you're really condemned for it. Um, yeah, so there have been times where I'm just like, like I want that person, to, I want them to hurt as much as I'm, I want them to hurt as much as they've hurt me. Even if it was unintentional on their part, right? It's like, but it's rage and yeah, grow up feeling like, well, if you don't control your rage, then you're going to harm somebody else. So instead of you harming somebody else, it's just, um, it's more responsible <laughs> to harm yourself because then I can, I can feel the emotion, I can act out on it, and then I can be responsible for the healing of it. And I also know that I'm okay. Like, I can handle my rage, even though nobody else, nobody else in the world can handle my rage. I can, yeah. So I'm not going to kill you today, <laughs> but yeah, I might, I might act out on myself um, to help quell that urge. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a crazy place to go. And then people who know me, they're like, Essie's so friendly. She's so nice all the time. Yeah, I work really hard not to hurt other humans. And I don't mean physically hurt. I mean, I don't want to hurt other people. 
I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want to hurt their egos. I, I don't like that feeling. I don't like being responsible for it. I don't like the aftermath of it. I don't like when it happens even sometimes inadvertently and then I don't even have access to that maybe helping resolve the problem because maybe I've really upset somebody and then I'm it's hard to navigate it's troubling <laughs> life is hard uh, my name is Essie and my diagnosis is dissociative disorder but not confirmed it was I had a therapist for five years, um, and due to my self-harming, he recognized that it was probably related to some type of dissociativeness, but I never, I mean, I don't know if that counts as a clinical diagnosis or not. As a young, young person, a scab picker, uh, my mother used to like pick at whiteheads on my arm and I remember not wearing short sleeves for years of that young period of my life and yeah and I remember I think it was fifth grade I was so angry about it that I started I was like I'll do it myself I'll pick at my own imperfections and just I felt disfigured by it and um yeah so it probably started really young and just morphed and evolved until I rediscovered maybe some of that. And I don't consider it disfiguring. I love my scars and I even love my wounds. There have definitely been times where I'm like overwhelmed by them and I just want them to be healed and I feel like I can't get there, especially when you start using fire. If you do branding, it takes forever to heal. Yeah, and sometimes you're like, well, I was over all of this two and a half weeks ago, and I still have another two weeks of healing and hiding and covering up. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it comes and goes, tug and pull. From the way my therapist helped me understand it, which I think feels accurate, is that my mother did her best obviously. I think all parents, that's all they're capable of. And then my brothers and I probably had to learn to emotionally stabilize the home in a way that children would hopefully not be responsible for. So there, there was a lot of arguing, a lot of loud arguing, a lot of loud arguing in a foreign language for our neighbor's entertainment. And my brothers and I, I think, all learned to be um, effective in quelling that dynamic. And once you feel like you are responsible for your parents' emotional well-being and you're taking on the responsibility of parenting your parents, that it can create um, a lot of, yeah, a, a sense of responsibility that you grow up with that is, um, yeah, maybe misdirected. It was just my thing that I had 
that um, helped me manage my life. And I had a partner and he moved in and I could hide my self-harming from him pretty effectively um, because after doing it for so many years, you just become really good at it. And I actually admitted to him after one weekend that I self-harmed and I confided in him instead of trying to hide it, thinking like, okay, that's going to be the right approach because he was in 12-step and he was going to therapy and I was trying to be honest in the conversation and he kind of turned it on me, <laughs> kind of made it as um, that I acted out to get back at him. And that was really upsetting and hurtful and, of course, did not go the way I planned. And so he strongly recommended I go to therapy, and I kind of conceded. But when I went to therapy, it was because I'm having this relationship with somebody who I'm being very supportive of in 12-step and attending Al-Anon meetings um, and confided in him about something that I struggle with. And yeah, didn't, didn't get that same level of empathy. Um, that relationship ended. <laughs> but it, yeah, it took about, um, I started therapy of September, I think it was 2004. And um, the relationship was over in my mind by December. I waited till May um, so he could get through his first year of sobriety, get through his birthday, and I think it was Memorial Day, two weeks after his birthday, I did it. Yeah. Yeah, that's fucked up, man. Don't fucking come down on somebody for their shit when you're being super supportive of theirs, but anywho. when I started going to therapy that was when I was 34 and I had been self-harming since I was 19 and if anybody asked me about the scars or if anybody caught a wound I would always just tell them it's not what it looks like um, inferring that they meant I'm suicidal and I wasn't <laughs> and I would sometimes want to correct people like you think this would, you know, I'd, I'll tell you how to kill yourself. <laughs> this is not what it looks like. Um, no, but uh, I would tell them it's not what it looks like, and it's none of their business, and I'm fine. So I did that for years and years and years. Um, and then again, I confided in my partner. Um, that probably wasn't the first time I spoke openly about it, but that was what got me into therapy. And when I went into therapy, I told my doctor, I'm here because I'm struggling with my relationship and he's upset about this behavior I have. Um, so he wanted to talk about the self-harming and I thought, I don't know why. I mean, I'm the rock of Gibraltar. Everybody comes to me with their problems. I don't have a problem. Uh, he unfolded that very carefully, it, but it took it took, a gosh, maybe a good two and a half years, maybe even more, before um, I would show him my wrists because that was something he would sometimes ask. And I would literally just, like, 
fall into a state of shock and discomfort and uh, literally just remove myself uh, mindfully from the room <laughs> and try to sit out the remaining minutes quietly. Um, yeah, so I, I felt like that was a breakthrough, breakthrough when I could show my doctor, my scars. Um, yeah, and then another element of that was when people would ask about my self-harming and, or ask about the marks or not ask, and I'll just forthrightly bring up the conversation. If I meet new men, I'm very uncomfortable about it not being something they understand about me. Uh, yeah, so that, that, that's a big breakthrough anytime. I mean, I still, it's interesting. I live with my parents now and they see my arms, right? They don't ask not a word about it. They don't, they don't want to know. They're obviously scars. They see the tattoos. They don't, um, they don't speak disparagingly of them they just accept them but at the same time my parents feel insecure if other people in their peer group see them and so they're still just they want me to be the daughter that they want they have the daughter that they have and they found some point in the middle that's comfortable for them to accept me in the context of what works for them and I'm fine with that. I don't need to like bulldoze them with my therapeutic experiences. I don't need them therapeutically. I'm happy that they're both living and healthy and that I can be here for them. So we found a comfortable balance. <laughs> Having access to dissociating, I think a lot of people do it a lot more often than is probably acknowledged, whether it's through any kind of physical behavior, people who weightlift, people who go running. I feel that it's called different things, but a runner's high, I feel, is probably a bit of removal from the body's experience. Um I think dissociating for me has, again, maybe not always benefited. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's a no-brainer. Nothing that's probably not positive is always going to benefit anything. Anyway, um, no, there have been times when I'm having a very difficult conversation or a very difficult experience. And instead of having that difficult experience with that other person, I choose to remove myself from it because it's so uncomfortable and, and because I'm possibly feeling such deep hurt or rage, right? I want to just step away. And then what will happen is I won't, so I won't act out in any way in the moment. And then I will go home and then everything will be allowed to computate and all of the feelings will then be allowed to be expressed and then 
I'm already two hours away from the experience with the person. Uh, so I send some type of thoughtful email that's grammatically correct and well thought out, you know, <laughs> um, to, to not often a great result or not the result I want. Um, and I've definitely had that experience with people where they feel like they had their nose put in dog shit two days after they shed on the carpet. They're like, I don't even remember what all of this was about. Um, yeah. So dissociating in those moments, I feel maybe protects those relationships in the context of how I think I'm protecting the relationship. Um, I should probably not be picking people with whom I feel I have to protect them so diligently. Um, but I feel like that about my parents and I think that's what I apply to the world. Um, but the times when I think it's benefited me are the times when, yeah, sometimes I'm just depressed. Sometimes I'm just deeply sad. Sometimes I'm just deeply frustrated and to have an outlet, it's like something that's just mine. I'm like, oh, feels like such, um, feels like a real authentic release. And I'm sure exercise helps. I do exercise. I know there's other behaviors. And I always describe it this way, that what therapy did for me was it introduced me to a tool shed. <laughs> and it said, this is how you use all of these tools. And I'm well-versed in all of them. Again, because I feel very fortunate to have had such an excellent doctor. And there are times when I look at the tool shed and I have the key in my hand and I toss it over my shoulder and I'm like, fuck it. I don't want to fucking go to that tool shed. Not going. I'm doing it my way tonight. And uh, sometimes that is perfectly acceptable for me. For me, it works or it satisfies. Because I had um, scarf scarification also performed on me, I had access to a body piercer who could get me real scalpels. So I had a collection of like medical grade scalpels. And that's a whole different ball game when it comes to self-harming. Only because it they're sharp and you get into the habit of certain behavior and then you have an implement that's not what you normally use. Not that I ever damaged myself in a severe enough way where I had to be hospitalized or even worry about it, but yeah, scalpels, that was a thing. And I, that was maybe another aspect of the breakthrough. I turned in my remaining scalpels to my therapist. I did near the end of our practice together. Not that it stopped me altogether, but it was, it was, um, it was this, it was this, there was that component of me making a decision to relinquish something that I had held so tightly, even through all the therapy, 
even when we were speaking openly and honestly and laughing together and sometimes crying together, the fact that I was able to relinquish anything to him, that was, that was maybe a little bit of a breakthrough. <laughs> I always say a little bit because, right, we're 15 years after that and I'm still somewhat connected to my behavior. I think what helped me relinquish any control was trust. Though, again, going back to the relationship where I confided in a moment of vulnerability and in a moment of him being in 12-step and in therapy and us being very communicative, that was a real painful experience of giving over a little control and then not getting a good result. So working with a very reliable doctor and, again, someone that could negotiate my lifestyle within the context of my self-harming, there was a lot of trust. And the giving over a little bit of control, to be honest, I think was less about me and more about me wanting to please him. That would be probably the truth because I don't need those scalpels, right? I can use anything. So I feel like relinquishing the scalpels to the doctor was a sign, I think, of me wanting to provide him this aspect of, thank you for your hard work. (laughs) I mean... I used to come into therapy sometimes, and I just had no idea why he had the patience to sit there and listen to me talk about the same thing over and over and over again. And we, I would, he and I had a very friendly relationship, and so we could very comfortably sit in a room together and kind of explore these deep conversations while also having somewhat casual inter. Um, a, a somewhat casual interface. And so, yeah, I think by the time I relinquished my scalpels, I had gone, I believe it was nine or 10 months without actively self-harming at that time. And it felt like I wanted to note it and and present that to my doctor. I mean, I'm sure if I re- I mean, I've kept a journal for 30 years, so I'm sure I could go back and find (laughs) the exact thing I was thinking at the time. But as I reflect on it, it was more about, thank you for all of your hard work. I've gone nine or 10 months now without harming. Um, I have been keeping things at home as a just-in-case, and now I don't need these anymore for just-in-case. It's weird to try to measure your own um, growth, and especially when you're dealing with any kind of yeah, behavior or mental illness or whatever. The measure of growth sometimes is only relative to what you perceive or understand around you. So my particular doctor and I 
have a very specific context to what growth would be like for me, what improvement for me would be like, um, which would be very different than somebody else engaging the same behavior relative to the wider world around me my peers still become upset if I share with them honestly that I'm still engaging the behavior. And I, I, I want to kind of say to them, <laughs> by the time you know about it, the emotions, the feelings, that was yesteryear. Like that was a lifetime ago, even if it was three days ago. Like for me, those emotions are gone. That, that, that state of exacerbation is now gone. There's nothing you can do. So, uh, yes, I feel I've had growth. I think all of us will continue to grow and gain wisdom and feel gratitude for another day and just keep going. But rel- my, my growth relative to the world around me, I think, still does not seem like I've grown because I'm still, I tell people this that think I'm being cynical or uh, a pessimist in the world, but I feel that every day is my last and not that I have a projection of my death, but that I feel very lucky to be alive. I'm very grateful for it. So yeah, even a bad day, I go to bed, I wake up the next morning I'm happy. I'm happy for it. And even if I self-harm the night before, there have been many times where, you know, wake up, kind of stretch out in bed and then realize like, oh, fuck. Right. I did that last night. All right. Well, now just keep moving on. Just immediate acceptance, no regrets, no shame. I have another day. And I get it. It's difficult sometimes for people who love you. So, right, if I came upon a friend and I saw an open wound that seemed self-inflicted on them, how am I going to feel? Of course, I'm going to feel that I want to comfort them and I want them to reach out to me in those moments and I want to be there for them, even knowing that that's not why they're not going there because I'm not a good friend. They're not going there because they don't have support systems. They're going there for the same reason I go there. And then there are times I respect that. I have a couple bartender friends. They just happen to be female, which I know self-harming is a lot more consistent in our gender. Um, But they come, I know, it's hit or miss, but they come to me and they've confided in me because they know I'm just going to sit there and say, I understand. I totally understand. And I'm never going to shame them for it. Never going to tell them I wish they didn't. I'm never going to make them have to go back in time to regret a behavior they can't go back in time and shift. No. So, yeah, I think that's, that's that maybe that's part of the gift. I mean, that's how I feel about coming here. Ideally, there would be healthier ways of doing it rather than breaking the skin. Maybe sometimes maybe breaking the skin 
I remember seeing um, Dancing with Wolves and the scene of her mourning her husband's death in the field when Kevin Costner comes upon her, the native, the white woman as a native. And yeah, she's just cutting her flesh to bleed. That's a mourning ritual. And I don't know, something about that felt really beautiful to me because I thought, yeah, why, why does there have to be this negative stigma? And I get it. I know there are people who suffer the behavior in a way that's different from my experience. And I never want to diminish that. I would never want to diminish their clinical experience with a doctor, with a professional experience. But for me, I felt like I was somewhere in the middle. There are definitely times when I still wish, like, oh, fuck. I don't want to feel this way, and I wish I didn't have to fucking deal with potentially healing out wounds in non-seasonal long-sleeve weather. <laughs> Dude, it's a drag. I manage it, but yeah, it's, it's less comfortable. So part of me feels that I am conscientious not to take too much responsibility for everybody's voice um, because right my experience is very uniquely my experience and there might be somebody who is young I was also I think a very mature young person well before 19 and was also very obstinate and very yeah I I would do my own thing despite most advice in general. As an example, my junior year of college, I was in Israel, in Jerusalem, year abroad program, Gulf War, the first Gulf War started, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. About nine-tenths of the abroad program um, left and went back to their home countries. My parents begged me to come home, and I refused. Yeah, Saddam Hussein threatened to start bombing Jerusalem January 15th, and he did, and I remained. My parents were threatened by their family members. <laughs> like, you have to get her out, you know, to, like uh, shut off her credit card access. My parents just... They felt helpless, but they let me stay. I mean, they didn't really have a choice. It was a war zone. I survived. Um, so that was that was the 19-year-old that then the year later started self-harming. So there was nothing that anybody was going to tell me. So I don't think there's anything I could tell anybody else in the context of maybe you need to seek out help. I waited until I was in my 30s. Could I have benefited from finding that outlet earlier on? Absolutely. It just, I'm of a little bit of an older generation, and going to therapy was not something supported by peers or by work insurance or in general, just socially. Uh, so, yeah, a young person today, I would want them to find outlets 
that maybe embraced that uh, that anarchist, that inner kind of rebel, but hopefully just in a way that would never end up with them hospitalized um, or bleeding on the floor helplessly. You know, there's just, there's so many ways things can go really wrong, really sideways with a, a potentially very dangerous activity. So yeah, I would say if you can get help, get help right now, everybody has a therapist. You can text, you can text for like suicide prevention. I mean, seriously, access everything that you can, even if it's just an outlet for that night of, I'm feeling really self-destructive. I can text a suicide hotline and they text you back and maybe it even distracts you for an hour and a half long enough to just get back to your video games or something else. I don't necessarily want to encourage people to embrace this behavior. But if it's a part of your life, I mean, it's a part of your life. If I could talk to 19-year-old Essie, I would tell her, do whatever you're going to do. I would never change anything, none of it. The growth that comes from experiencing life is amazing. I would not be who I am today if it wasn't for 19-year-old Essie. So yeah, do it, girl. It's a rough road. I'm not saying it's the right way. I'm not saying it's the best way, but it's the way you chose. So yeah, let's do it again. I would change nothing. I love who I am. I'm really lucky about that. <laughs> Honestly, I turned 40 and I thought, wow, my father was 40 when I was born. So the year I turned 40, my father turned 80, and I had a moment of, oh, for fuck's sake, I have another 40 years of this. <laughs> so a lot of me feels like every day is gravy, right? I'm going to be 50 next week. It's a fucking beautiful life, scars and all. I have no, no problem with any of it. There's nothing I could say to 19-year-old Essie that I could say to 50-year-old Essie that would change anything right now. <laughs> because you know what? I probably should talk to 50-year-old Essie. I would have potentially more impact. <laughs> and I don't talk to her very much. <laughs> I mean, I do, I do. I just don't, I don't try to, I don't try to school myself. I do try to engage in a lot of learning and meditative aspects of life that I think are healthy, listening to podcasts, lots of walks. I listen to a lot of music. I am really grateful every day. So yeah, 19 year old Essie, go girl. Whatever nonsense you get yourself into, it's gonna be a good ride. <laughs>
If you have mental health questions, please talk to a mental health professional.